Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. Hi, everybody. This is Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics. On today's episode, this is going to be installment three of, well, what turned out to be a three-part series of my ongoing review of the various CBD products liability lawsuits that were pending until quite recently against a multi-state operator named Cureleaf. In the various lawsuits, and as you've heard me discuss in the past two episodes, along with my guests, uh, my law partner, Sam Sachs, who does a torts practice, and Danielle Hernandez, who's from the world of insurance, there have been a number of lawsuits filed alleging product defect with some CBD products manufactured or sold by Cureleaf. And over the last two episodes, Sam, Danielle, and I have talked about those, and just talking about the issues surrounding uh, the various legal questions. Anyway, it turned out a, a month or so ago, an additional lawsuit was filed, this one alleging wrongful death. Apparently somebody died and was claiming that an adulterated product had some uh, involvement with that death. Um, so Danielle, Sam, and I met again, and you'll listen to our discussion over the next uh, 45 minutes or so, uh, analyzing the issues in the case and also just hypothecating where things might go. Well, as it turns out, not even 12 hours after we finished recording the episode, announcement came down that the Cureleaf lawsuits, all of them, including the wrongful death lawsuit, settled. They're all done, they're all gone, and that's the end of it. Uh, I am happy to say, though, that during the episode you're about to listen to, Sam, Danielle, and I all kind of hypothecated that the case would probably settle fast and go away. So I'm happy to say our predictions turned out to be pretty accurate. Still, though, it's a fun discussion, and I hope you enjoy listening to us, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Alex, Sam Sachs, and Danielle Hernandez, who were here, uh, what, about three, four weeks ago now, and we were last talking about these um, Cureleaf CBD lawsuits that are out there. And indeed, since we've spoken, I guess another one's come out and now alleging a wrongful death claim arising from an alleged tainted cannabis product. And of course, Danielle, you're coming from the world of insurance, which is, of mm -hmm. course, a buzz over this because it's a brand new thing in that world of insurance. And Sam, you are, of course, my go-to guy for all things torts and personal injury. So thanks, both of you, to coming back on the show. Great thanks to be here. having us. Yeah, for sure. So let's let's set the stage. Um, for Like I said, we've got a, a new complaint that's happening. So uh, do you guys maybe want to walk the audience through it and we'll, we'll talk on top of this? Yeah. 
Do All it. Right. So let's uh, let's just pull the complaint up. And for the audience at home, um, if you're only listening to the audio, be aware there's a video of this on YouTube, and you can actually see the text of the complaint as we're talking. So if you are listening at home and want to see it, go to YouTube. So with that, I've got now up on the screen uh, to share with everybody, and we'll, we'll walk and talk through this, a copy of the complaint. And right away, you'll notice at the top, it's out of a federal district court in the District of Oregon, Portland Division, um, which really doesn't come as a, a surprise because Oregon, of course, is very popular cannabis state and has had cannabis longer than a lot of other states. So no shock that it's coming out of a place like that. Um, but what we also see is on the face of the complaint, there's reference to two claims, one being a uh, wrongful death, and I guess that's citing an Oregon statute, and the other being products liability, also citing an Oregon statute, and then uh, reference to 28 USC 1332. And you'll see the plaintiff is a gentleman named Grant Yoakum, uh, as a personal representative for the estate of Earl Jacob, and they're suing Curaleaf. And what this tells you in the caption, of course, is that uh, there's a dead person and a party representing the estate of that dead person is bringing the suit. And so now let's dig in. And it's in the federal court because of diversity. Yeah, um, thanks for that. So yeah, let, let's, you know what, Sam, let's, let's walk through the um, allegations here uh, and point this out. So allegation number one is talking about jurisdiction and the parties. And it discusses the fact that there is a diversity requirement, just like Sam said. Um, allegation number two identifies uh, the personal representative and their role in, involved in uh, being in this case, including uh, reference, I guess, to what looks like uh, probate case number on allegation number two. Sam, do you agree with that? Yeah, interesting. And I don't know this state's laws, but in Arizona, um, you don't necessarily need to be probated as the personal representative. You certainly can be. There are certain reasons under Arizona law you would not want to be a personal representative bringing a um, a wrongful death action. In fact, a wrongful death is defined by our statutes in a lot of states. I'm assuming also Oregon, it's it's also a statutory type claim. There must be some reason why they did it this way. Either that's the law of the state and you have to, or B, maybe Earl died without the statutory beneficiaries. In Arizona, it's spouse, mm -hmm. parents, child are automatically sort of representatives, if you want to call it that, otherwise known as statutory beneficiaries. So I'm assuming it's something like that. Um, there's no reference to any other family members that I saw, at least I don't see here. So I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, but this could be a state specific type of thing. Yeah, and you know, you, you make a great point too, Sam, because I mentioned this in, in the last two times we spoke about this on the show. It's worth reminding the audience again. Uh, neither Sam, Danielle, nor I have any contact or connections whatsoever with any of the parties to this case or the case. We're just simply reviewing a publicly filed pleading and hypothecating, uh, leveraging our professional experience based on the words we're reading on the page. So for the folks at home, understand we don't have all the details, and these are just uh, our musings based on what somebody else has written. Sure. And then just another point, you know, Grant. Yoakum, who's the name, who's the personal representative, also has a different last name than the decedent. So that's obviously not dispositive, especially these days, but it tells me maybe there isn't sort of a family connection that might be under 
Uh, that state's law is similar to Arizona, but uh, we're just guessing at this point. I mean, somebody can look it up and probably figure it out. It doesn't really matter that much. Um, the concept of a wrongful death um, is, or or a weak, you know, is the fact that somebody caused the death of somebody else, and then somebody's able to legally bring that claim on that person's behalf because, as somebody who's passed away, you're not able to actually sign documents or pursue claims or collect judgments. Um, your estate might be uh, able to receive money, but obviously if you've passed away, you're not filing any lawsuits. So these states like Arizona, Oregon, other states have ways to for somebody to sort of step into the shoes of that person and legally act on their behalf. Yeah, and you know, that, that makes me think of one additional point that um, the non-lawyers in the audience might not understand or appreciate. So let me ask you this, Sam. Um, why, why is it that dead people have the right to sue? Sure. So uh, in Arizona, again, I, I think this is true in all common law states. Common, at common law, meaning before there were statutes and everything else, if you died, all of your claims died with you. So what this could lead to, the, the, the wrong this could lead to is, hey, I'm going to drunk drive. I'm going to drive drunk and I'm going to make sure that I kill my victim. And I'm off scot-free. They can't do anything. They lose their claims. That's great. I don't think the law wants to incentivize people to, to actually kill their victim because that would be better than if they survive, they would be able to sue me. But if they don't survive, I'm off scot-free. So as a result, a lot of states enacted special laws that said, hey, if you wrongfully or negligently cause the death of somebody else, there is a way to for those to recover for that. You will be, you could be held responsible for it. In Arizona, there's basically two ways. One is under title 12, 611, um, that says this is a wrongful death statute and the following people, like I talked about before, the specifically designated people are hereby, they have a claim. So it's spouse, the legal spouse, and only in Arizona law, if you're actually married, we do not have common law in Arizona. So if you were living with your um, high school sweetheart for 50 years and you're acting like husband and wife, but you never actually got a marriage license, you do not have a claim because you are not the lawful spouse. Parents, uh, I, I do this a lot. You come up with parents who are estranged from their children and all of a sudden, you know, father who's never talked to their child technically has a claim under the law. They have to be contacted. They have a claim what it's worth, that's to be determined because one of the measures of damages is sort of your relationship to the person that passed away. Um, and then children automatically have a presumed right and a claim. So those are the general statutory beneficiaries. We also have, similar to what it looks like is going on here, we have something called a survival action under our probate code, which is Title 14 in Arizona law. And that talks about really it's really designed. You can have both. You can have an overlap, but it's really designed for people who don't were not married, did not have any children, did not have a spouse and their parents are not around. So what happens in that case? Their claim could disappear or you can get a personal representative appointed to collect on their behalf um, or open up an estate. So that seems to be the sort of thing that's happening here. Again, it very well could be that this state's law says that you have to do it, you know, you have to open up an estate, blah, blah, blah. But um, again, 
not a, an attorney in that state. It may have been both. There's sometimes under Arizona law, you want to do both. There's some drawbacks to getting a survival action because you actually become liable to the debts of the estate, which does not happen under a wrongful death statute. Um, and so, for example, if this person had a lot of medical treatment, which we're going to get into, and it looks like he had a fair amount, in Arizona law, the medical providers might be able to come back after you if you did a survival action on behalf of the estate and say, hey, you got a million dollars. We, you know, paid out, uh, you know, $500,000. So we want some of that money. Under state Arizona law, if you did it as a straight wrongful death, it is not liable to the debts of the estate. That's specifically in our statute. So you get that million dollars sort of free and clear. So that's a reason why, if you know the difference between the laws, you, a lot of times you want to pursue just a plain wrongful death, unless you don't have a choice, unless you're that long-term uh, partner, but never married. And maybe there is no statutory, you know, maybe there's no statutory beneficiary. You don't really have a choice. Um, so that's maybe what's going on here. I, I don't know. Um, just speculating. Yeah. Um, so bottom line, though, is yes, dead people can sue you for killing them. Correct. Um, and I also noticed this lawsuit doesn't name other family members right. or other, other uh, concerned parties. The law generally, though, as a concept, would permit certain family members from also bringing separate claims for the loss of the loved one, right? Yeah, and it looks like it says, I'm looking at number two, it says, according to a judgment entered in Lake County, case number 21, I assume PB stands something like probate. Yeah, that's my... Uh, so it, it sounds like either this was kind of just a, you know, looking at the date. So the, so the judgment was dated December 8th, 2021. This is filed in January. Um, you know, I don't know, you know, it very well, it, does it say when he died? Let's mm -hmm. see, we'll probably get around. Here we go. Yeah, well, uh, it's a little August 18th, right? No, I think it was December. Right. So I'm looking at, we're skipping ahead, but it looks like he took the drops allegedly in August oh, no. of 2021, right? It, he, he died on October 19th, 2021. Okay. So, you know, I don't know between October and December, I'm just thinking about like, if there was a big family battle. I guess, but more likely that sounds to me like a pretty smooth, quick probate case. And so it may have just been a very simple, it, it suggests to me, again, if I had to completely guess that there probably wasn't a bunch of family members fighting over this claim, because um, that's a pretty short time frame. You know, if you pass in October and then you get a judgment in probate appointing a, a, a a uh, personal representative that's pretty swift wouldn't you say at least in arizona yeah i know i, know. So. <laughs> I don't probate law but i know people sure. do and yeah that that even yeah. to my virgin ears that does sound fast i mean probate's usually the slowest types of cases so yeah. i would expect there to be years difference if there was a fight so by the way again pure speculation conversation but... are you thrilled to not be a lawyer and instead doing insurance yeah <laughs> right I'm learning. I'm drinking it all in because uh, you know, we've already bored all in. Is drinking. <laughs> we've okay. officially bored everybody on page two. Yes, that's perfect. <laughs> so let's let's press ahead. Okay. So allegation number three just says that the defendant, Kira Leaf, is a citizen of Delaware. That's just you know their principal corporate office. Which, by the way, if if you're not familiar much with corporate world and corporate law, most big corporations tend to be based out of Delaware. It's simply driven by Delaware's very corporate favorable laws. It's a choice, not much more than that. 
that's as much as we probably need to say on it. Uh, let's see, allegation number four talks about venue in Oregon. Um, again, this is all predicated on the fact that things happened in Oregon, which in turn gives rise to Oregon having some premise or basis to be the place where the lawsuits brought as compared to say Delaware, where Curaleaf is. And lead on the list is, this is where the, the, the plaintiff or the decedent really uh, encountered the product and passed away. So it makes sense in that context. Okay, now on page three, starting with allegation number five is where we actually get into the story of this case. Uh, so Danielle, do you wanna run with this a little bit and, and tell some folks a little bit about the, the factual allegations and how you view them? Yeah, so I mean, this is going back to what we talked about before that um, basically from the factual allegations um, on August 18th, 2021, and again on August 29th, 2021, um, Mr. Jacobs um, consumed C CBD drops. And again, going back to what we talked about before, they were labeled and marked as CBD. However, they weren't. Um, they were um, clearly THC, and, and I'm not sure what the dosing was with that. But again, if somebody is, is consuming what they believe to be CBD and it's THC, there's a whole host of um, different things that can occur from um, a medical standpoint, from a, a mental psychosis standpoint. And so that's where they kind of get into that, um, talking about how the label was mislabeled um, as CBD, like we talked about in our last um, podcast, which for anybody watching now, please go back and, and review. Um, the facts of how this all went down, there was a mix up somewhere. And so the CBD was put into THC containers and the THC was put into CBD containers. Um, so basically what they're saying, and this is where I'm confused and I'm gonna lean on you guys um, a little bit. Um, what I thought was interesting was allegation number nine where it says THC is not fit for unintentional human consumption as it can impair a person's ability to drive motor vehicle and cause unwanted anxiety, panic, and acute psychosis. So this seems to be where it jumps off of because as we go into um, more of the facts of the case, that's pretty much where it surrounds. It's saying that after he ingested this, he started sweating profusely, had to go to the emergency room um, and he was in psychosis. And then as we get along, and I'm sure you guys will go back to the actual facts, but just from a 30,000 foot view in the sky, um, they're, they're alleging that after he ingested this and, and suffered all of these horrible, you know, psychosis and, and, um, sweating and hallucinations and everything else that he never got out of bed after that. Um, and then for whatever reason, he, he deceased on in October. What I found interesting was that there was no actual cause of death listed. It just says that it was part and partial to it. So I guess that's where I would start asking my questions from an insurance perspective as I'm looking at this and looking for coverage is, what are the things that we actually need to know in order to determine whether or not this is an actual maybe fact-based allegation or if we're maybe reaching for straws a little bit here? Hmm. So in that, in that sense, and I, I suspect Sam will agree with me on this, the insurance industry is as much looking for a causal link between the alleged facts and the actual death in mm -hmm. order to determine if there is coverage under the given policy that might be at issue. And in the same sense that uh, you know, a plaintiff is looking to make their case by 
proving to a court that there is a causal link between the alleged facts and the death. Yeah, and the other thing, if you, again, getting ahead a little bit, I guess the decedent was 78 years old in uh, 2021. You know, just on that, it's going to be a little difficult, I think, to just get over the, the hump of this directly caused the death. I mean, what I'm reading right now, and, and in all candor, I think Gary and I had not really seen the complaint too much. You kind of were walking through it. Danielle's seen it a little bit more than we have. But I think there's going to be a huge debate if this goes forward about what the actual causal connection is. That's critical to any negligence claim. Um, maybe not products liability so much, although they have to prove that there actually was THC. Maybe. I mean, do they have the actual container uh, of these drops? Are they going to test it? We talked about that a lot last uh, episode, right? Yeah. So all those remain. And then you have the added problem of proving that it actually led to the death. So um, we're going to get into it, but there's some pretty vague allegations, it looks like to me. And, and again, this is what's called notice pleading. You don't have to put in the specifics at the complaint stage necessarily. But I'm assuming if the death certificate literally said death by psychosis, if that's even a a thing a medical examiner would put in, I am assuming they would have said that. I I certainly would have, if I'm doing plaintiff's work, I would have put that in, Um, you know, and maybe it wouldn't even be a lot. Maybe it wouldn't even be a lawsuit. Maybe they would have come to the table potentially if it was that clear. But I imagine that it's a little less clear than that. And which doesn't mean it's not. A legit claim. I'm just saying, you know, looking through the defense eyes, there's quite a bit of questions I have on that aspect. Yeah. And, and, and that in turn means if an insurance policy has been triggered, that insurance company is now going to be looking at hiring defense counsel, probably needing to hire and pay experts to tease stuff apart and, you know, either prove things did or didn't happen the way they are alleged. And, and plaintiff, I think also would be looking to get experts to render opinions that things happened as they are alleged. Yeah, I would think so. I think most, I I would say the smart move is to have those experts lined up before you file a lawsuit, particularly in federal court, um, particularly against a well-heeled defendant. I would, and it seems like these are a fairly large uh, state firm that's involved here. Um, They, according to their website, again, I don't know them. I'm I, I, just a little website sleuthing. They, they seem to be quite a few attorneys and they do personal injury and bankruptcy. So this is in their wheelhouse. Uh, I'm imagining that they have this kind of evidence um, to file a federal lawsuit. And again, looking at the dates here, they didn't, I don't know if there's a statutory reason why they, they filed it pretty quick, pretty quickly. If he, if he died in October, again, I don't know what their statute of limitations are, but they can't be 180 days, I would imagine. I mean, it's got to be in Arizona, it's two years for negligence. I mean, I could do a quick search while we're talking. Let me, let me Somebody else is talking about for the non lawyers in the audience, though, because they're yeah. not going to so have a clue what a, you're talking about. Sure. So, statute of limitations is essentially a deadline. When do you need to file a formal lawsuit? If you miss your statute of limitations, if you miss your deadline, your claim goes away forever if you don't have any defenses. So one of the most important things any attorney is going to ask you, pretty much any legal issue, is when did it happen? Um, if something, if a, if somebody, dr- you know, was driving drunk and rear-ended you and really hurt you in Arizona, but it was three years ago, 
you got some issues. <laughs> you may have a UIM claim. Well, you know, five years ago, unless you're a minor, unless you have some kind of, there are some exceptions. It's not that clear, but it's pretty clear a lot of times where you have missed your deadline. And unfortunately, I've had to tell clients with otherwise a very good, valuable claim, sorry, you can't bring it. And, and when I've done defense, sometimes I've said, hey, really sorry about the plaintiff, but it's past the statute of limitations. It's past the deadline. Uh, the, the thinking behind having statutes of limitations are just as a society, you don't want to be held open for liability forever. You know what I mean? It, it, how do you, how do you do business if like you might be sued a hundred years later? So, you know, there are, most states have statutes of limitations or deadlines. They could be, it's state led. So it, it, some states have very short, some states have very long, somewhere in between. Typical statutes of limitations for negligence claims are two years, one to, I've seen four years. I think in uh, Utah, it's four years or New Mexico. I mean, there's a couple of states with longer statutes for negligence. I've seen them as short as a, a year to text. I, I don't know. There's a couple of states with like a shorter time frame. Um, but I just, this happened relatively quick, quickly. If you think about it, the guy was appointed a uh, personal representative in December and he's filing in January. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know why, but I'm assuming there's some reason why. <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, you funny. would think that they would enter into. Typically yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'd have to guess there had to have been at least some preliminary conversation between plaintiffs and defendants camp before this lawsuit got filed. Right. But it's equally plausible. There wasn't so much as a syllable exchange between them. Yeah. This, I mean, sometimes time this company getting sued was made aware they were getting sued. It's it, it might be one where when you're up against a company like this, the best way to get their attention and to say hi is to file a lawsuit. I don't usually approach things that way, but, it, you know, with a bigger kind of company, maybe again, I, that gives me reason to believe maybe there isn't such a great link. And so you kind of have to show them that you're being really serious and you're, you are prepared for this. And, and sometimes filing a lawsuit, or maybe they didn't respond. Maybe they wrote a letter and, and Curlief and or their counsel just ignored it, which is not necessarily a bad defense move sometimes. Mm -hmm. And maybe they just said, you know what? We're going to sue and show you that we're serious and that we're in front of the court with it. Because um, they can get sanctioned if, it, if there's like no basis. It, it's risky to do that um, to some extent. Yeah. And, and, and let me let me add a little more on top of that as well. For, again, for the non-lawyers who might be listening to this, the complaint itself may look bare bones to the untrained eye. Um, and I wouldn't blame anybody for saying it is a little bare bones to the untrained eye. But the reality is, as Sam said earlier, uh, the pleading rules are effectively what we call notice pleading. You don't have to give literally the entire story and the full list of all of your evidence and your complete explanations in the complaint. You merely have to come forward with enough base information to carry forward the question of your claim. Um, or as my torts professor from 30 years ago used to say, and I'm not kidding here, you just have to make intelligent grunts. Um, if your complaint is just that, you've met your burden to carry the case forward to the next step. Uh, and I did some, I did some very deep, inter, um, uh, very deep legal research. And the first result that comes up shows me that Oregon has a three-year statute, maybe for wrongful death. Okay. Um, that sounds about that's, you know, Arizona's two years, three years sounds about right. Um, I'm sure 
a lot of these cases, they have a lot, there's a lot of exceptions to the rules. So you really have to know what you're doing. And that's why I don't present that as that's true, but that's what I'm seeing mm-hmm. on a preliminary search. And usually statute, statutes of limitations are one of those things where, you know, it, it's it's not, you don't have to dig too far to find them because every literally every single case it affects. So you, you'll often see a lot of, you know, um, documents about it. There's usually almost a lot of case law on it because it's something that literally every case runs up against. So it's not like a a hidden statute type of thing. It's it's usually pretty well known what the general statute is. Yeah, for for sure. And then and then looking um, a little further into this complaint on page four starts the claims for relief. And at paragraph 10, first claim for relief is products liability. But if we keep scrolling, and there are a few allegations, and, and here is kind of the flesh of the story of mm-hmm. uh, what happened. But again, not all the details, just enough to, as my torts professor say, make intelligent grunts. Um, but, but it's enough to point out that there's a product and that there's an allegation that product was in some fashion adulterated or lacked the proper notice and thus was in the causal chain that injured the, the decedent, uh, which, by the way, for non-lawyers is just fancy word for dead person, uh, decedent. Um, anyway, that goes on to the next page, and paragraph 11 takes an entire page. Uh, and then we finally get to page six, where the second cause of action is, and that's paragraph 12. That's wrongful death. Um, One more thing, a result of my deep legal research, products liability in that state is two years. So. Oh. When you have two claims, one is three years, one is two years, you operate under the assumption that you have to file it within two years so that you meet also the three years and you don't lose that earlier claim. Yeah, always go with your shortest statute of limitation, which of course is premised on what causes of action you'll bring. Um, There are oftentimes cases where you might have the, the right and ability to bring multiple causes of action, but you might, as a matter of strategy or other, uh, decide to forego some of them. Some people plead it out as a wrongful death. You can also plead it out as negligence and the result was death. Yeah. You know, it doesn't really matter, but I think there is a negligence claim in here. I mean, that- that it does say again, that they were, that the negligence caused- there's um, a substantial factor in causing mm-hmm. defendants wrongful acts and omissions. So that tells me right there that that's sort of the crux of negligence. I mean, let me see. Do they ask for punitive damages? Uh, they ask for 1% of net. Right, right, right. Yeah. But, um, right. So, and that is an allegation. It does. It is yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's the, yeah. There's a punitive element. So, I mean, Look, I don't want to credit. I don't know every state. The other thing too, is like when I get calls from other states that I don't have any connection with or practice in, and there's some states where I've done, I know a lot more about the law than, than here. You know, I always refrain from criticizing anybody else's work. I mean, there are various reasons why you might've wanted to do a, a bare bones type of complaint. On the other hand, again, my initial, I know Gary's <laughs> Gary does different types of law. Gary does very full-bodied, specific complaints for a lot of reasons, a lot of good reasons. Sometimes I'm a little bit more, it depends on the case. You got to look at it from the case. Mm -hmm. I tend to put in more certainly than this, but I'm not at all criticizing the attorney. I don't know. There could be various reasons why 
they needed to or wanted to file a complaint like this that's relatively bare bones um, before putting in like super specific things. But it's not a very factually rich or legally rich complaint. I think we can all agree on that just looking at it. Um, so I, it leaves, there's a lot of questions about it, which by the way, may mean that the next filing in this case is the motion to dismiss, you know, for reasons where they, the, they might tell the court, we, they don't really tell us what we did wrong specifically. I think it passes muster probably. I mean, I don't know. It, it depends on the federal judge there, uh, frankly, but so yeah. here's a here's a layperson question for you though, since this is individual of you know separate from all of the other um, lawsuits that happen because of this one incident. When somebody's bringing a suit like this to court, is this looked at from its specific case, and so the the judge is not going to look at all the other noise that surrounds it? So they're going correct. Yeah, to treat it like that. Yeah. Okay, you're, you're spot on accurate there, Danielle. Under the conventions of every court, this would not be unique to the federal court hearing that case or a court here in Arizona. This would be every court. Um, the case evidence and what the judge would take is limited to that which is presented, and that all has to pass through the filters of multiple okay. rules of evidence, including relevance so uh, and hearsay, and, and it has to meet standards of admissibility and authentic authenticity. So you, you couldn't just ask the judge, you know, hey, there's a bunch of stuff in the news, you should just pay attention to that. That would be completely inappropriate for the court right. to do. And, and in point of fact, you might actually have encountered this if you've ever sat for jury duty uh, or um, seen anything about jury duty on TV. One of the key instructions a jury gets is during the trial, don't turn on your televisions, don't watch the news, don't take into consideration anything you did not hear specifically admitted into evidence during the trial. Your consideration of anything outside of the record is inappropriate. Yeah. And that's right. I guess the only exception might be if you're telling the judge that these other cases are related and we need to consolidate them. So like literally, you know, if 100 people died with these same drops under the same circumstances. But that's something the judge would have to determine that, yes, these are all related. These have the same defendants, the same, you know, and then you get into like the class action stuff we talked about a little bit, but generally the judges has to just look at the papers in front of them and you have no right to assert the rights of others and to say, Hey, they hurt somebody else. So they hurt me. Now you can get into that in discovery. I mean, that, that may be relevant with a case like this. For example, I mean, if they have evidence that, you know, people who took this particular product or batch of this product had issues. That's definitely something that it may not instantly come in, but as a plan, you know, I'm sure their attorneys are going to want that and look into that. That that would help prove that this product is indeed tainted, right? Um, and in, and on the other hand, the defense may want to show and bring in evidence that hey, nobody's ever complained about this particular product, this batch. It's never ever happened. So why did why are you saying it happened here? So that could be a, a defense um, issue as well, by the way. You know, the so, lack of there being a, a, a widespread concern. Here's, yeah. the, here's the interesting part, and this is why I brought this up. Because in insurance world and language, oftentimes you have a self-insured retention or a deductible for claims. And that can be separated and delineated differently on a per claim basis. 
right. or per occurrence basis. And so when I'm looking at several different lawsuits coming in, I'm wondering to myself, how would cover how would the deductible, or in this case, because it is a, a huge organization, if there is a higher self-insured retention, and if that self-insured retention would apply per each and every individual lawsuit. And remember, sometimes those self-insured retentions can be, you know, upwards of six figures. Right. And then this is a layperson's question to you, Danielle. A self-insured retention is essentially like a fancy deductible, is it not? Yeah, self-insured retention is a fancy deductible. And usually the way it works is that the insured pays the first however many. So let's say uh, let's say that they had a $250,000 self-insured retention. So one, that's the financing perspective for the insurance carrier to say, cool, we're only on, you know, the, the back end of it. So you're going to, you're going to self-insure basically the first 250,000 of it. So because you're going to do that, we're going to lower the premium. It's a financing perspective and mechanism, but essentially, yes, the insured has to pay that first tranche of whatever it is. And only after that's exhausted, then does the insurance carrier pick up the defense and the coverage essentially for that. And remember, like we talked about last time, defense is, is typically in cannabis inside the policy limit. So once that million dollars, if that's what it is, or if there are you know several layers of, of coverage above that, once that limit has been breached, you're done. Can so it's I, like a burning limits. Can I get a little gross in response to that comment, Danielle? Sure. Um, and I mean no disrespect to any of the parties, but we've got a case where a, a gentleman in his 70s or 80s, so it's one of those. Close to 80. Say almost 80. 78. Uh, pa- passed away as a result of something either related to what's alleged or not. That's for a court to determine at some downstream moment. But from a pure damages perspective and looking again at the self-retention thing, mm-hmm. uh, and Sam, I'll need your, your mind on this as well, just the damage, never mind the punitive element, that's a different topic, but just the damage of a gentleman in his 80s, that can't possibly be a really high number, right? Uh, it depends how you look at it and, and how close, like, again, looking at it through the lens of Arizona law that says that a wrongful death action actually belongs to the statutory beneficiaries. Um, You know, and this is another angle that I think we brought it up. This is another layer of damages that's beyond just, I crashed my car and it cost me $10,000, right? So, you know, think about it from a jury's perspective. I'm assuming this goes to a jury if it survives through the process. How much is a 78 year old man's value? the question is, tell me about the person. <laughs> tell me about his family. Was he non-communicative and bedridden completely and completely detached? It certainly doesn't seem like it because there are allegations that his family members saw him decline. But yes, it, it's very different if you have uh, a Mark Zuckerberg in the prime of his life, who's a billionaire having this lifestyle and he passes away due to negligence versus a 78-year-old who probably is toward, you know, hopefully not, but possibly towards the end of his life. One of the experts you need in these cases is somebody to tell you what their life expectancy was based on their particular health profile. Um, I mean, we're in a pandemic, Uh, you know, I mean, that factors into it too, right? I mean, unfortunately, 
these people are, and I have relatives, you know, they're, they're at higher risk. Mm-hmm. It's, it's interesting how the whole pandemic thing is going to play out in the minds of juries, hopefully looking at cases after this whole thing that's going on, you know, might look back and say, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I know five people that passed away because of COVID. How do we know, you know, yeah. unfortunately, that's the kind of discussions juries in about two to three years are going to have, hopefully looking back where there's no, you know, it's gone or whatever or mitigated, but you know, so yes, Gary's point is not only do you have a problem with causation at 78, but just in general with almost anything that health related. Number two, you definitely have questions about, unfortunately, the only thing, and Gary and I tell clients this as well, in this civil arena, the only thing we're talking about is money. Um, you know, there's a sense of justice in finding out the answers, but at the end of the day, a court awards you a sum of money or doesn't award you a, a sum of money. There are some exceptions for specific performance and other things, but in general, we're talking about money. And it's a really tough job. I mean, I have clients who say like, how can, how does a jury figure out how much my pain and suffering is worth? And I say, I don't know. <laughs> how do they? But that's, that's what we have to do because we don't have time machines yeah. and we don't have any other way of valuing things. So, so yes, I, I would think on paper, the value of a 78-year-old person's life could be very different, but probably not as valuable from a, from a negligence standpoint as somebody who's younger, somebody who has actively raising kids. I mean, think of the damage to a child who like, you know, a 10-year-old child with their parent that loses a parent in their 40s, you know, much different than somebody who's been able to have a relationship with their parent till they're 78 it's not that it doesn't hurt. It hurts. It's terrible. It's still potentially a lot of money, but it's different. It's just very different. Um, those things. And, and unfortunately that's one of the wild cards in this whole thing. Yeah, for, for sure. So now tying that concept back to where Danielle was a moment ago with this retention issue, it seems more probable than not that the damage number skews lower than if this were a younger person in the prime of their life and high earning. And then we're Mm -hmm. looking at this potential theoretical, we, again, we don't know this, we're just hypothecating here, but this potential theoretical retention. And then you look at the additional claim in the lawsuit for punitive damages, which we know from past conversations on the show, insurance is not going to cover for a punitive damage award ever. It's just an exclusion from policies, right? So in a weird way, this could really be a lawsuit that doesn't implicate insurance, couldn't it? Potentially. I mean, it just depends on how it's written. Um, you know, but you still have to report a claim to your insurance carrier. So you still have to report it, that it's a claim. And again, that could be one of the reasons why they leverage the lawsuit because they know that even if the company has essentially, let me just explain what Danielle said, because I understood it. I'm not so sure how many other people who have no experience with insurance or law would understand it. But what a lot of people know when they buy a car and they buy car insurance, they oftentimes cover their own vehicle, their vehicle that gets damaged. And then they kind of have that thing with their insurance company of a deductible. So mm-hmm. most people have a concept that, that if there's damage to the car, that's over my deductible, typically 500, a thousand, I'm responsible for it essentially. In other words, the, the insurance company would say, we're really sorry, you got $1,000 worth of damage to your car. That's within your deductible. Sorry, go get it fixed. If it's $10,000 of damage, we're gonna cover everything above your deductible. 
You can try to get the deductible back from the liable party. But you also know that when you're buying insurance for your car, for example, the higher the deductible, the lower the premium for that coverage because the insurance company is looking at it like we're not going to have to pay for a thousand dollars and less little chips, you know, a windshield. We don't have to pay for that. That's within your deductible. You want us to pay for everything? You want no deductible? We're going to raise our rates. And so that's a typical sort of, you know, when you're pricing out insurance, something that a lot of people look at. The self-insurance is how companies say, we don't want to pay an insurance company a huge premium. We want to take all the claims. We're going to be responsible for the first $250,000 of claims from our own pocket. Mm -hmm. And then insurance is just covering us for those crazy claims. For example, the guy takes the, 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 you know, Mark Zuckerberg takes the CBD drop and then drops dead. And on his death certificate, it says THC, whatever, you know, that causation is much more you know, tight and much more that that's a huge exposure. Now the company doesn't want to be without any coverage. So, you know, that butts through their 250 limit. Right. It's an excess of whatever. They want to cover their really extreme company threatening type of things. But for the sort of day to day stuff, it's much cheaper for them to just kind of keep some money aside and handle these smaller claims. That's what I think companies look at, but I'm not an underwriter, obviously. Yeah, it's it's basically measured risk, right? Like uh, from a company perspective, you're measuring the risk that you're willing to take on, right? So that's 100,000, 200, whatever, whatever you have it. But just like you mentioned before, that they still, if the claim came in, they still have the responsibility to notify the carrier. Now, that's where I'm going to get really nerdy and say that there is different language on different um, insurance carrier policies that mandates different types of reporting where you are held to, you have to report it immediately up to 30 days or there's no coverage. And so that's why it's extremely important to be able to read those forms or have an agent that understands the differences in how those read. Additionally, even if you're self-insuring up to, let's, I like to use 250 because it's a nice round number for me. Um, even if you are self-insuring up to 250000 in the forum, you may have an obligation to notify the carrier of where you're at monthly, quarterly, or even to like a, a financial decision of like different increments. So once you've blown past 20000 for example, you have to let the carrier know because the carrier wants to be able to know when they are going to have to take over um, the claim. So you know, claims, claims made policies. And that's how, that's what products liability policies are in totality um, in the insurance landscape right now for products. Um, It's extremely important to know how that works. And then the the larger the company is, the higher the self-insured retention is, is going to be because we're, we're looking at more sophisticated risk financing. Yeah. Yeah. And remember also these plaintiffs have the confidence that this case can't drop into a bankruptcy. These, this defendant can't go file bankruptcy because it's not available for cannabis companies and those dealing in cannabis products. So that might give them a little extra confidence too. I, I, my supposition is they at least have some kind of test that shows that this product contained a significant amount of THC. I, I don't, I mean, this is in my mind, again, looking at it from an Arizona perspective, and I talk to people all the time and, and I help walk them through, this is a near non-viable case economically. I mean, I would, I would be like, 
for all the reasons we talked about causation, the age of the of the victim. I mean, unless there's some really compelling type of thing, and, and it could be because it's like how much of this is going on in the industry, Gary? You know, how common is this? Is there something going on? We talked about sort of ad nauseum in our last segment. Is there something going on with like the testing facilities and the companies knowingly doing this because for whatever reason, they don't want to pay for real tests or whatever, then there's some value in it. But I mean, it's this, this is a really tough case. I mean, just on the face of it, again, under Arizona law, this isn't an easy case in my mind. Um, yeah. And, and you make a good point because and, and we talked about this on the on the last uh, show where we reviewed these things that there is a world of difference between just the the oopsie negligence versus the intentional bad actor mm -hmm. uh, and the bad acts that an intentional bad actor would do. Big difference between those two. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say if you get past the liability hurdle, I don't want to be in front of a jury defending against having contributed to kill, killing a 78 year old or 73 year old or you know what I mean? Um, I think a jury would be sympathetic if they got over that hump of, okay, this company did do something wrong. They shouldn't have done it, especially if there's any intentional, even if you don't make it to the bar of, of literally punitive damages, but you know, you have an email from somebody, a worker saying, Hey, I think there's THC in this. And you have the manager saying, don't worry about it. doesn't matter who cares. You know, I, I would see causation much more and I would expect cases where like there's a vehicle accident, right? I mean, you get into a car thinking you're sober and you're not, <laughs> you know, you're seeing, seeing stuff float by that ain't there. Yeah. That to me is much more causation uh, risk than, than what it seems like is here based on what we know, which is like, it sounded like he went comatose. It's not really clear what the medicals on this whole thing is. You know what I mean? It's just. Again, I'm not a doctor and that's probably, but they didn't put, provide a lot of, a lot of detail. You know, I just think it, it's a lot easier to understand, even from a jury, you know, a jury, I think part of it is like, are they going to understand what happened just in their minds? Right. I mean, just think about you and me, like, would we understand the concept here? How, how technical is this going to get? We can all understand somebody thinking they're sober and not being sober and crashing into somebody. Right. I mean, that makes sense. It's, it's a story that makes sense. This is a little bit more like, well, how, what does the THC have to do with this? You know, like, you know, psychosis, what, you know, I don't know. You just at another level of like, what exactly is the causation and the harder the story, the more you have to make the story sensible. I think the more difficult the case it is that said, the cases you see filed are the cases that are not easy, right? The easy cases get settled usually you see the more difficult cases and sometimes life is difficult. Life is not clear cut. And so it's not that I haven't seen difficult cases. There are difficult cases and that this is in my mind, at least a difficult case, probably an expensive case for the plaintiffs. I would think, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe they just want a, a modest settlement and, and, you know, there's enough risk here. Uh, I, I think it really depends. What's really going to, play a role is is how much this is happening and if there's something going on in the actual company on a repeated basis mm -hmm. you know what i mean that that to me is where it that's where the analysis changes versus looking at all this causation stuff i mean do you really have a problem with your cbd products hey right um if you do you know having a wrongful death on your hands is not a, a, an appetizing prospect yeah agreed Agreed. 
All right. Well, I think that covers the complaint. Are there, are there other issues that either of you want to share with the audience that we can address today? I would be interested in seeing what their response is. If they play it as just a straight up answer, let's go to discovery. If they try to do a motion to dismiss, to try to, you know, suss out exactly some of the details. So that, that'd be kind of an interesting thing to follow. Um, I, I suspect this is the kind of case that either gets settled or dismissed. So I wouldn't be shocked if there's a dismissal. Sometimes that means there's been a settlement. Sometimes that means other things like, hey, where's your evidence? You know? Um, yeah, I, I was going to say my, my money, uh, I'm betting that no answer gets filed and this all gets resolved behind closed doors and we'll never hear another word. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I think this is a somewhat aggressive move to file. So I, I wouldn't be shocked if there's an answer. Uh, on the defense side, I would probably, especially with the self-insure, you know, with, if there is 250, that's my client's money. If I'm a defense attorney, mm -hmm. I don't want, you know, the problem being a company is this might not be the only case, right? So if you just settle out all your cases, I mean, there, there is a concept of like, people find out about it. Hey, you know, you send in a demand letter and they send you a hundred thousand dollar check. Quick way to go out of business if that's really what you do. So I, I don't know that there wouldn't be an answer or some more aggressive defense on a, on a fact situation like this. But I agree with Gary ultimately that I think this case magically disappears. I'd be shocked if it got to the jury <laughs> trial thing, but yeah. maybe. Well, well, so then how does that how does that work with like case law and, and studying it does, it um, new standards and criteria? Since not. let's just say that this does go away. So then if another claim comes, we go through this whole yes, situation do. again where we're learning all over again because there's nothing to default from a historical perspective, correct? 100%. Spot on. Okay. In fact, that's one of the factors. That's one of the factors the company may say, you know what? We don't want case law on this. We don't want discovery on this. We want to settle um, because we don't want that stuff out there. Um, on the other side, the plaintiffs may say, you know what? This is one case. It's kind of a tester case. We want the discovery for five other cases that are coming down the pike. So that's definitely the fact that you're not going to get case law necessarily is actually one of the strategies and, and factors and leverages that you work with when you're doing this stuff. Yep. To totally agree. And, and by the way, um, even if this were to go to trial, you still wouldn't get air quotes case law. What you'd get is a trial verdict. Case law is when you get an appellate decision that's binding in your jurisdiction on all citizens in that jurisdiction and beyond theoretically. Um, so yeah, you're talking about two layers of court before you get to right. case law. Um, any defendant worth their salt is going to want to try to avoid that particularly is there any regulatory concerns the defense should have on this i mean the fact that there is a death to me um yeah no it depends on the licensing scheme in oregon and what it provides like like for example uh and i'm not licensed in oregon so i can't speak knowledgeably about oregon law but here in arizona yeah, our cannabis program is regulated by the Department of Health Services, and it does, amongst other things, promulgate a body of rules that requires, amongst other things, product testing. And mm -hmm. yeah, if you're found in violation of that, your license to uh, engage in what you engage in could be in jeopardy. And I, and I want to be clear what that means. Um, our particular regulations are written, well, candidly, very weakly. But uh, there is an opportunity for the Department of Health Services to revoke 
a dispensary license in a circumstance that's appropriate. I don't know if this would be it. And again, this isn't taking place in Arizona to boot, but it's a possibility. Sure, you can get a disciplinary order. And what would that mean? It would mean that this wrongful death would turn into the death of the business. Because if your license is revoked, you're done. Right. And that would be the most horrendous outcome for everybody because on top of everything else, uh, of losing your business, losing your revenue streams, and not having insurance coverage potentially, you could be facing down a gargantuan verdict at mm-hmm. trial and have to pay for it, including possibly, if there was appropriate circumstance, having the plaintiff be able to punch right through your corporate wall and get it your board and your shareholders. And there's certainly, you can uncover evidence that could, again, this is extreme, but lead to some criminal charges too. I mean, you see that yeah. happening with companies as well, if it's that egregious. Um, so yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't get the sense here that that's, what's going to happen. Yeah. But, I don't, I don't either, but yeah. again, we're just hypothetical. You know what, but if there's, if there's 10 other lawsuits in the next six months, <laughs> and then you start, not, not to say that filing a lawsuit is proof, but then it's like, okay, wait a minute. You know, and I think that is what most companies would consider, you know, Hey, we got 10 of these from different people, different parts, same product that when you're making a product or involved in making a product, I mean, that's got to make you nervous seeing that. I mean, yeah, well, that's what I was going to double back to Danielle and ask. So once the insurance carrier gets notified of this, I'm assuming the carrier's going to just immediately launch into get us um, SKU numbers, get us batch numbers. We want to see the numbers of each product that rolled off the assembly line on that given day. Uh, And we want to know where those bottles went, because isn't that a predictor of potential future or additional claims? Well, first, the first part of any claim that happens with an insurance carrier is they look at the facts of the case. And then there's two different attorneys that are involved, which is extremely costly and not very many people understand how this works. So when an insurance claim is submitted, they find out the facts of the case and then they hire what's called, called a coverage counsel attorney. And that's where the attorney reviews the contract, which is the insurance policy, along with the facts of the case. And then they determine whether or not there's coverage. If there's coverage, then it gets turned over to a different attorney because there cannot be conflict of interest between the coverage counsel saying, um, yes, there's coverage. And oh, by the way, I want to defend it too. They, it has to be two, two separate houses. So coverage counsel says, yes, the coverage applies. Then a, a defense attorney is hired unless you can negotiate some cool things um, to be able to have your own defense attorney on that. But the defense attorney um, that works for the insurance carrier um, will then be brought in. Um, so, and then if there's not coverage, then the, de, then the coverage counsel attorney will create what's called a reservation of rights letter. And they will send that out to the insured and specifically state where in the policy there may be reservations for an exclusion. It's not necessarily a total exclusion, but it's saying, hey, wait a minute, we're not really finding where there may be coverage or we're finding where there might be exclusions from coverage. Um, and ROR letters are not fun to, to deal with um, because there's a whole lot of, of wonder and, and supposing statements that are made. And then you have a very nervous client who doesn't know what's gonna happen because it's not an outright denial. It's just saying, hey, there's the possibility of the denial. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, Sam and I have both encountered those on the regular. So. Well, well familiar. Thanks for that. All right. Um, So with your permission, guys, what I'd love to do, if there is, in fact, an answer filed and more comes out of this case, would you like to come back and talk some more about it? Sure. Wonderful. 
All right, uh, Danielle, final word. Um, this is really interesting. It's always giving me something new to learn about. And thanks guys for teaching me more about law so I can get more nerdy um, <laughs> on several different layers as I'm going through coverage forms. Well, since I know you well, I highly doubt you could get more nerdy, but I'm happy. To <laughs> Sam, final word from you. I, I am hoping I make it to 78. <laughs> God willing. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. There's and, then, and then if I want to take THC, darn it, leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you need to watch. What's that movie? Oh, uh, it's a heroin reference, but it's Little Miss Sunshine. There's a historical, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. historical reference in there about uh, that. Um, okay, cool. Well, thanks guys so much. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank you.